Hey, live from AC Second Fans. This is Chris Garretts of Nothing Rhymes with Garretts fame. I have another podcast called the Pietist Schoolman Podcast that runs on the Christian Humanist Network. As we start our kind of mini third season on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we thought we would simulcast or a simul podcast on both networks. Enjoy. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. This week on the Pietist Schoolman Podcast, we wrap up our third season by considering the legacies of the Protestant Reformation. Welcome back to the Pietist Schoolman Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Garrett, joined again by Sam Mulberry from Bethel University. Uh, we've been off the air for an extended Thanksgiving break. Are we? What a nice break it was. It really too. was. It was very yeah. pleasant. And we both enjoy Thanksgiving food, so I think it's, it's one of our favorite breaks of the year. That's right. Uh, but before we reach the end of 2017, we thought we'd convene once more to a 30th episode. This is our 30th episode. That's right. Uh, once more to think about the Reformation that started around 500 uh, years ago. So let's... If it's been a while, if you're new to the show, let's just remind you, first of all, we are not experts on the history of the Reformation. This is not a comprehensive narrative. But over the course of, I guess, six episodes this season, we, we started with medieval Christianity, started talking about some of the efforts at reform in the 15th century, talked a lot about Martin Luther, but then also about different kinds of reformations, you know, radical, magisterial. I would say we did not really have room to talk about the Catholic Reformation in any detail, not because it's not important, um, we just, I think, kind of ran out of bandwidth, and it, it didn't fit in. But like, if you're really interested, there's certainly plenty of excellent books, you know, biographies of people like Loyola, Teresa of Avila. Um, there's a scholar named Craig Harline that I really appreciate who um, has written about the Catholic Reformation. Then he had a kind of general Reformation anniversary book that came out um, either earlier this year or 2016 that I'd recommend to. So if you want to dig into that, I'll maybe put some links on our on our show page. But as we wrap up, uh, specifically today, we want to think about the legacies of the Protestant Reformation. So less about the events of the 16th century or even the 17th century itself, more like why does this still make a difference here 500 plus years later? So to give us a jumping off point, our last featured book is called Protestants, The Faith That Made the Modern Age. It's by a uh, British historian and theologian named Alec Reary. And I should say, it's not really a Reformation history. I think the first three, maybe four chapters are doing that. Uh, so it tells Luther's story, but then it follows Protestantism. And I, I think it's a real, it's a fascinating book. I mean, there's there's chapters on there about certainly American developments and British, but it's a really I think powerful chapter about Protestants in Nazi Germany. I think what's really distinctive is you have a whole chapter about South Africa, both you know, the kind of uh, Africana reform context and then also the resistance to apartheid. And uh, you know maybe the most important one is there's a chapter about South Korea as well, and then it ends with a lot about China. So I, I recommend the book generally. But in addition to its religious history, Rary is trying to make the case that the Protestant Reformation births what we think of as modernity, of the modern age. And specifically, he thinks that it leads to uh, he calls them three key ingredients of the world we live in. So, Sam, I, I don't know if you want to do this kind of one at a time or if you want me to run through all three and then kind Let's of... Let's go one at a time. Okay. So, number one is free inquiry. These are all... This is Rory I'm quoting. Protestants stumbled into this slowly and reluctantly, but Luther's bedrock principles led inexorably in that direction. 
The insistence that all human authority in religious matters is provisional and that the human conscience, constrained only by the Bible and the Holy Spirit, is ultimately sovereign, means that Protestants who try to police the boundaries of acceptable argument have in the end always failed. Protestants have always been divided among themselves, both in their religious and their political leadership, making it easy for new and dissenting ideas to find spaces both at home and across borders. Protestantism is not a paradise of free speech, but an open-ended, ill-disciplined argument. How it has come to continuously generate new ideas and revive old ones is a recurring theme of this book. Protestants' bare-knuckle style of public debate wore down print censorship, and Protestant universities and scholars led the way in the emergence of the new natural sciences. Uh, slowly and reluctantly, one notion which a few radical Protestants put about, that religious difference and free speech ought to be accepted as matters of principle, rather than merely tolerated as unavoidable necessities, became a new orthodoxy. So a kind of theme here that we'll come back to with another author is these are often unintended consequences. Luther did not set out right. to liberate us all to engage in unfettered inquiry. But intended or not, this is where we are in large part because of, of the Reformation and Protestant development since. So do you buy free inquiry as a legacy of the Protestant Reformation? I think so. I mean, the you know, we always talk in class about, uh, you know, the, the Diet of Worms is this moment where Luther is making this stand for freedom of conscience, you know, or at least... Um, changing what his conscience is bound to right and it's and it's pretty it's pretty simple what he says his conscience is bound to right to, to the word of god and so so i mean part of free inquiry is this sort of overturning of of established authorities mm -hmm. you know and that's that's i think a big piece and the problem is once you get that ball rolling it uh it keeps rolling and so whenever whenever you teach this it's always interesting to think you go from that there's this deep connection between the Protestant Reformation, and then stuff that they wouldn't that they wouldn't agree with, like the Scientific Revolution right. needs the Protestant Reformation, even though Luther doesn't like Copernicus. No, no and um, uh, I mean the, the actually the preface to Copernicus's and the um, Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres is actually a Lutheran theologian, but he's very very cagey about it. Like he sees the direction this is moving and, and tries to distance himself or to hedge it um, a little bit. So yeah, I mean I think that's interesting. Like. I mean, so here's the problem with this whole argument, and people have pointed this out, not just with Rory's book, but others. Like, you know, we have 500 intervening years and lots of other developments not in any way connected to the Reformation have, have, have played a role here. So I work with, I mean, is there a sense, though, that, you know, even the, say, Catholic influence figures of the scientific revolution are picking up on something from Luther. Well, you know, even if they're being educated by the Jesuits, sure. they're trying to stay loyal to the Catholic Church, are they picking up on this kind of my conscience is captive to I know? think so because because it's still tearing down the medieval world. I mean, Luther is Luther is a big wrecking ball tearing down a world that's already crumbling, but like he's he's helping to to finish the work off. So I think yeah, I I, I think that that's the and, and that's the part that that's why I say, like, the scientific revolution needs the Protestant Reformation. It's because you need somebody to clear out um, some of this medieval world that's still sort of lingering. And Luther, that's a big force that Luther has. Right. And, and then the work continues. I don't know if it's completed, but the Enlightenment. I mean, in a exactly. sense. And I have to go back and read Rury's chapter on this. But you could make the argument the Enlightenment is a fundamentally Protestant mm -hmm. move in, in the sense of it's a protest against any kind of authority apart from 
the individual conscience. I mean, you know, right. like in our in the class that inspires this podcast is you know, we read Immanuel Kant, what is enlightenment? And you know, I don't think Kant is Luther's idea of a good Protestant in any sense, but there's a kind of Protestant principle working out dare to know, don't mm-hmm. don't yield don't yield to the authority of a church or a tradition, superstition. Right, because even though Luther might not like Kant, there's got to be part of of Luther that Kant would 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 appreciate, right. right? Like like Kant's definition of enlightenment kind of matches the idea of here I stand, like I have done the work. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Now the other theme here that really kind of glides past is that as a result of this uh, result as a result of this free inquiry. Uh, it's hard then to police boundaries of Protestantism itself. Mm-hmm. And this is a point where he, he has been criticized by, say, more theologically conservative Protestants who don't like the apparent implication then that there is, well, is there orthodoxy? I mean, can we differentiate then, or is, you know, we're all just following our conscience? Um, so a, a version of this is the Southern Baptist theologian eth- ethicist Russell Moore wrote a, you know, not an entirely hostile critique, but like he picked up on this and said, no, I think there actually are boundaries of where this is what the church has believed. He's, it's nothing for a Baptist to argue, but there's a sense of, you know, we're not overturning everything. And, and in a sense, you know, we trust there is a kind of, um, it's not a creed or a confession, but there is a kind of articles of faith that we hold on to and we stand past in that tradition. Um, Another book I'd recommend here is uh, by uh, a story named Kenneth Stewart, whose brother is our uh, library director here at Bethel. That's um, uh, about the kind of he makes the case that evangelical Protestantism actually has a very old history. He tries to connect it not just to the Reformation, but to the Church Fathers, to the Patristics, and say, in his mind, that actually always has defined Protestantism as an attempt to be faithful to certain core tenets. Mm-hmm. Of Christianity, but you know, my good pietist self rears it head. I kind of sympathize with Rury, and, and like Rury's basic argument is: this is not about theology. This is about love. This is about a relationship with God, and it's fiery and tempestuous and paradoxical. And if that's true, it's really hard to fence it in with you may mm-hmm. not question this if you want to remain Christian. So I, I think like. At the very least, it's pointing to some interesting aftershocks, right, of not just in the intellectual world, but in the church itself coming out of the Reformation. Okay, number two. Number two. Number two. So, uh, free inquiry is linked, and here I'll pick up with the quotation from Murray, to Protestantism's second most dangerous contribution, its tendency toward what we are compelled to call democracy. Virtually all Protestants before the 19th century, and many since, regarded that word with horror, yet the undertow was there. Protestants regularly found themselves having to deal with governments that did not share their beliefs. They asserted not a right to choose their rulers, but a solemn duty and responsibility to challenge them. In performing that duty, the Scottish radical John Knox wrote in 1558, quote, all men is equal, unquote. Few Protestants at the time agreed, and even Knox meant something very different from what we understand equality to mean today. Most early Protestants favored monarchy, order, and social stability, but their rulers had an intolerable tendency to act in defiance of God's will, and so again and again they were forced reluctantly to take matters into their own hands. This is what we should expect from consciences fired with love for God, ready to take on all comers, unquote. So, I mean, he, he inserts lots of caveats there, like, right. you know, Luther, Calvin are not little d Democrats. Um, most of them are not even little r Republicans. But, you know, is this another maybe unintended consequence is Protestants often find themselves 
contesting older established hierarchical authorities, and they then, over time, tend towards democracy. Certainly. So, I mean, the, the, the priesthood of all believers has a kind of democracy built into it. I mean, so you get... You get Calvin's church government, which has democratic elements to it, right? And and because and, and it's really tied into the first point a little bit it, with the idea that that you know if if power doesn't live up at the top, power lives in that that individual who has that ability to question, and then and and that and and that is the roots of democracy is is when you start to think about the individual and the individual within a group. That's where democracy comes from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you see it right away. We've already talked about the Radical Reformation, the Peasants' War. Like, I mean, as soon as Luther does this, I mean, people understandably mm-hmm. want to say, okay, so then we're going to choose our own pastors and kind of decide for ourselves what we believe, and then we're going to take them to the political sphere and the economic sphere. And this is usually the first point where students have a problem with Luther. Yeah. They, they, they love him, and then, and then we get to the point where when Luther's basically asked, "Does the does the gospel have social ramifications, political ramifications?" Luther says no, but the students want it to be, and they look at the peasants, and the peasants want it to be. Right. There's something about saying there's something off-putting to a lot of people about saying we are all equal before God, but we're not all equal here, and yeah. and that it, that seems like like we're holding on to something when we should be overturning it. I mean, does this also then lead to some other, I mean, like, for example, if you put one and two together, you know, is this leading to something like civil society, you know, some sort of open civil space where we can learn to argue with each other well and disagree and come to resolution and consensus. Yeah. That I haven't read talk for in a while, but I would, I wonder if you would pick up on that. Um, The other thing I did think though, I mean, there's a flip side to that. There's a dark side of democracy, right? There's a, sense of majority ruling mm-hmm. that's pretty dangerous to religious and other kinds of minorities, right? Is that an outcome of, of sure. what Luther is unleashing? Okay, let's lead then, because actually three kind of picks up on this, and it always complicates it. So I'll just, again, pick up where Rui leaves off. Left to itself, uh, this, so this principle of democracy, could lead to revolution or to the creation of self-righteous theocracies. And as we shall see, both have repeatedly happened, he means in the history of Protestantism. But these impulses have been tempered by the third, much less remarked upon, but perhaps more significant ingredient of Protestantism's modernizing cocktail, its apoliticism. Protestants might have sometimes confronted or overthrown their rulers, but their most constant political demand is simply to be left alone. Returning to Christianity's roots in ancient Rome, they've tried to carve out a spiritual space where political authority does not apply, and have insisted that that space, the kingdom of Christ, matters far more than the sordid and ephemeral quarrels of this world. The results are paradoxical. Protestants have often been obedient subjects to thoroughly noxious rulers, taking no interest in politics so long as their own separate sphere was respected. It has also meant that rulers who would not or could not respect that sphere have faced unexpectedly stubborn opposition. In the process, Protestants have helped to give the modern world the strange counterintuitive notion of limited government. The principle that the first duty, even of the most righteous ruler, is to respect his subjects' freedom and allow them to live their lives as they see fit. So this, I mean, when I read this, this was the one that at least surprised me a little bit, and I'm still kind of turning it over in my mind whether I agree with it. So having now heard this for the first time, what, how, how do you react? Well, the thing that the thing that jumps to mind to me is the uh, is sort of the notion that, I mean, if we play out the Reformation story, we get religious warfare, we get all this, and that. One of the 
long-term ramifications of the religious warfare is that religion recedes a little bit from the public sphere and it becomes private and that's that again ties into these other things right that if 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 we're thinking about the individual and the freedom of the individual's conscience and maybe a little bit of autonomy to some degree one way to deal with that is to say is is to say religion is private and and and, and that's a way to get to toleration is to sort of um, divide yourself and to say, as a political being, I am public, mm-hmm. but my religion is private, so therefore my religion isn't political. Um, so yeah, I mean that, that's not surprising. I mean, I, I that there there is something to that, even though it is funny to think of of the of this movement leading to that. But I but I think that's a big piece. Yeah, of it. I mean, it seems paradoxical because you can end up with then for the sake of a what he's calling apoliticism you get highly engaged partisan politics like he's not certainly this after november of 2016 but like you often hear the argument why did especially white evangelical protestants vote for donald trump who i think you know if they're being honest by many ways meets the definition of the noxious ruler that certainly where he's talking about but they say well this was the lesser of two evils and it was a means to an end to protect our religious freedom mm-hmm. um you know namely the supreme court religious liberty cases and then you're probably roe mm-hmm. v wade as well and so it was a transaction made mm-hmm. for the sake of protecting then that apolitical space that we have right and right. And, and my vote is about political things then and and this might like he might line up enough with my political views and my religious views are protected yeah yeah so i mean that that is a way to to think about that now it's interesting because where you went with those actually the next book i wanted to talk about is you start thinking through what would this mean then for religious toleration right Hmm. and privatization that's exactly the argument made by someone we've mentioned before brad gregory who's a catholic historian at the university of notre dame so uh, I mean, he's the author of a great book about uh, um, called Salvation at Stake, A History of Martyrdom in the Reformation. But in 2012, wrote a, a long, complicated book called The Unintended Reformation, How Religious Revolutions Secularized Society. And then this year for the anniversary, he did a kind of popularized version that if you look at, it's called Rebel in the Ranks. It has a picture of Luther, and it's subtitled Martin Luther, the Reformation, and the Conflicts that Continue to Shape Our World. It it looks like it's going to be a Luther biography. Luther is done after a chapter, and then it's a kind of popular history of the Reformation, but it's all to make exactly the same argument as this 2012 book, which here I'll try to summarize. Well, actually, let me read from Rebel in the Ranks, and I'll try to summarize where he goes with the argument. So here's the unintended uh, consequence. So, uh, without a doubt, these secularizing trends, which developed over centuries, have dramatically transformed the Western world. Today in Europe and North America, no religion has anywhere near the public presence in or the influence upon society that Christianity exerted on European life during the Reformation era, and before that, the Middle Ages. A profound transformation has occurred. Because over the long term it resulted in vastly reducing religion's influence in public life, the Reformation has had the overriding eventual outcome of bringing about secularization in Western society. It's a secularization that would have dismayed and confounded 16th century Protestant reformers and their Catholic rivals alike, all of whom wanted to make their society and culture more thoroughly Christian, not less. But the conflicts that derive from their attempts to do so prompted decisions and actions that, despite their intentions, have made religion much less prominent in public life in the early 21st century. Ironically, their actions led to the reactions that have, in turn, led to this result. So here's, to to save us that whole chapter, here's how he makes the argument. You're left coming out of the Reformation with deep-seated divisions and... 
already aware from wars of religion in what becomes Germany, Netherlands, England, France, etc., to other kinds of less violent but no less serious divisions. Um, and they're not idle, and uh, they provoke conflict. But over time, then, people come up with a solution, which is, well, we should embrace a degree of religious pluralism and tolerate religious difference and say that however much these theological debates matter to us, we're not worth killing over, we can actually tolerate having multiple churches all next to each other. But on the basis, then, of private, privatizing religion. So that works as long as you disestablish you know, one of those religions, right? You don't privilege it in the public mm-hmm. sphere. And you know, to various degrees in the West, religion is removed. You know, everywhere from like France, where uh, laicite makes it so you know, a school child can't wear a crucifix, a yarmulke, or head garb if you're Muslim. Um, to the United States, where actually you, you hear Christian rhetoric all over the place, but there, there is a kind of wall, right, separating the two. And so the result is, while the Reformation is always about more than just religion, because Christianity infuses everything, in the end, the solution to the Reformation is to remove religion from everything else, from education, from the economy, from government, from law, from intellectual life, from cultural life. And you're left with this secularized West. And so this has been Gregory's fairly controversial thesis he's been advancing and people have been debating for five years to, to say that in the end, you know, as a solution to the conflicts that we've already lamented coming out of the Reformation, you get privatized um, religion and secularized public life. So it sounds like you agree with this because you kind of went in that direction. Yeah, anyway. I, I, I think I, I'm, like we said, I'm not a, you know, exactly a, a deep, deep, deep scholar of this, but that 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 feels kind of right to a certain degree. Um, yeah, I mean, like the, I mean, so one set of arguments against this is, uh, but again, there are lots of things that have happened that have sure. nothing to do with the Reformation. Like, how much causation can you attribute to this increasingly distant um, initial effect? Right, and like, are if history is contingent, aren't there all sorts of moments where other things intervene to make us go a certain? Certainly, direction? but but. I mean, I also think when you look at broad sweeps of history, there are, and this is very Martin Buber-like, but there are moments of stasis and moments of flux mm-hmm. um, in broad strokes, right? And and the Reformation is at such a deep moment of flux, right, that it helps, again, like we said before, tear down the old world and helps lay parts of the foundation for the new world. Mm-hmm. So, yes, all these other things happen, but you probably, but the Reformation is a big part of that because... Think of how different the world of the 19th, 20th century is than the world of the 14th, 15th century. Right. Like they're so different, and, and part of what you need is something to overturn all of that, and the Reformation is part of it. Now, mm-hmm. scientific revolution is another part of it, sure. but but that's that's a big piece, I think, to, to reshaping that world. So I think there are two layers to what Gregory is doing. So one is this kind of debate about causation. You know, why, why is the world the way it is? You know, which is one historian's, you know, this is what we debate. This mm-hmm. is a question we always ask. I don't know if this is an implication. Or, I mean, I, I think he fairly clearly believes that this is also a prescriptive like, was this a good thing that this happened? And I think Gregory has come to the conclusion it's not. He thinks that it's led to a kind of moral pluralism, and there's no possibility then of a shared sense of the common good, is hmm. his argument. And now, I don't know exactly what his solution to that. I don't think he's arguing for theocracy. You know, I would guess he would say something like, 
um, natural law in Catholic social teaching gives you a way to bring religion back into this religiously plural public sphere. And so faith then has a way to shape what just economic policy would look like. It would, uh, it would speak into what a just legal system would look like. But I mean, I, like for me, like as someone for whom religion is very important and I don't necessarily think it should be purely private, like I am nervous about the idea of like, we should go back to something like Christendom. Sure. Right? We should sure. go back to something where Christianity and like I don't even know what that because I don't even know what the shared Christianity would be, let alone the like what that would be shared across religious and non-religious mm -hmm. difference at at this point. Well, and you know, and part of that is is also being marked by the fact that that, that we are marked, we are people who are marked by a legacy of the Enlightenment as well. That even though if I asked you, you know, do you believe that basically this is a story of progress, you probably wouldn't say no. Mm -hmm. You, at the same time, I think that you believe the answers lie forward not, and not necessarily like, well, what we need to do is get back to that. Like we need to maybe learn from that because you're a historian, but the answers are still forward. Yeah. And just to say like some of the things that have happened are probably improvements, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so, 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 and I think that's, that's, uh, I don't think you have that kind of conservatism of saying, well, we need to try to reestablish those things. But you see answers going forward, and I think that's a mark of the Enlightenment. Ah, or it's mark of the fourth ingredient from Alec Riri. <laughs> this is like we rehearsed it. So that's right. It's incredible. Um, so let's go back to Alec Riri's book on Protestants. Uh, so he has these three kind of aspects of the modern age. And then he comes to a fourth, and here is where he picks up the German sociologist Max Weber's idea of the Protestant work ethic. Because you would be tempted to say, oh, so one effect then is capitalism. It's a market economy. It's a certain attitude towards the use of time and what a fruitful, productive life looks mm -hmm. like. And he's not quite sure of this because there are plenty of challenges to that that we don't have to get into. But here's what he does say. Like, there is a difference of mood. Uh, quote, as uh, Weber pointed out, one of capitalism's odd features is its restless activity. Protestants are not always driven to restless economic activity although the need to fill the unforgiving minutes of their lives in a manner which is both blameless and worthwhile can push them in that direction. But a certain generic restlessness and itchy instability is absolutely a core characteristic of the Protestant life. Settled peace and consensus uh, does not, do not come easily to Protestants. They are more usually found straining after new truths, searching out new sins, or striving to recover old virtues. They have always known that their religious life is flawed and inadequate, and no sooner create an institution than they suspect it of calcifying into formalism and hypocrisy. They are forever starting new arguments and spawning new forms. The self-perpetuating dynamo of dissatisfaction and yearning has helped to fuel and support the growth of capitalism, more broadly, it has also been and still is one of the engines driving modern history. Um, so you buy this. There's a certain kind of generic restlessness where Protestants are never exactly satisfied and uh, are, are yearning then to continue to reform. I think so because that because that is the um, I mean one of my favorite Erasmus lines you know is you know order human things as will you'll always find faults enough and there's then and I mean that's what he says there right says, that, yeah. that you build an institution. And and it's never it's never perfect. It's so it's never done. Like the word, once you unlock the idea of we are not just going to accept these authorities, we're going to question that sort of freedom of inquiry. Like that's probably the the lot the lot in life of the of the of the Protestant Reformation is you need to keep doing it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think I mean something really isn't saying a lot here. I mean, Protestants also have 
take very seriously sin. You know, mm-hmm. They do it differently than their medieval kind of forebears. But, I mean, there is a sense, right, that this world is not as it should be, that we are not as we should be, and maybe our institutions are not as they should be. And so, you know, if you believe that individuals are simultaneously sinners and saints, wouldn't you think the same of your churches and of mm-hmm. your governments? Sure. And, I mean, so like, there's, I mean, I think by this point, you know, everyone has heard Protestant solas before as the slogans of the Reformation. But there's another, you know, at least uh, in... You know, in, in certain Calvinist circles, slogan that I always come back to, I'm going to get the Latin wrong. I think it's reformata semper reformanda, reformed and always reforming, or reformed and always being reformed. Um, and I think I keep coming back to that, that in some respects, maybe that is the chief legacy, at least for religious life. Well, maybe we can bracket off all the other aspects of modernity. Like, at least as we think about ourselves and about religious institutions, whether it's, you know, the churches we go to, denominations, or a Christian college like this one, there's a sense of, like, the work is never finished. I mean, the Reformation always is incomplete. I mean, that that drives the radicals, right, initially, but maybe it drives people to this day. Um, And so maybe, like, that's my restlessness. I don't necessarily think the solution is to go back to a pristine form somewhere in the past, Um, but, like... I mean, one thing that has driven me in recent years to say, like, maybe in the spirit of that always reforming ideal, maybe there are usable paths we could go back to. And so as Rory continues his book and gets into the 17th century, a movement he inevitably comes to is pietism. You kind of knew on the pietism podcast. (laughs) We had meander our way back to this. But the second season of this podcast was kind of thinking through a book that was published this year called The Pietist Option. And so I thought as the end of the third season, this is the place we should talk about the pietist option. Were you going to bring the author on? Hey, here he is. So I wrote this with Mark Patty, an evangelical covenant pastor, and then Sam actually was part of the initial conversations about this, and our book has been out for about two months now. And um, in a sense, I think that's what this book is doing, right? To say, like, maybe we're in another of those moments where it's time for something like Reformation. And a way we can do that is to go back to pietism. So Reary gets to pietism, and he looks at it and he says, you know, in some respects, this seems inconsequential like spanner seems like the dullest reformer ever like read your bible like preach better like educate better uh like take the priesthood of all believers seriously like what is that i mean just you read it you don't understand why it was such a powerful book um and yeah there's nothing new except that it did lead to this kind of enormous revival and then helped to spawn all the different evangelical awakenings of the 18th 19th century um and those are versions of the kind of restlessness. And, and especially I think of Rury's line that you know, Protestants can't create something without worrying that's going to lapse into formalism. It's such a pietist concern. Like, mm-hmm. we need institutions, like, we need professionalization, but, like, that's always, it's going to take on the form of something like the power. It's it's going to be a dumb idol is a good pietist phrase. And so, like, reading Rury's book, like, as I was finishing writing the Pietist Option really made a kind of sense to me. And it's why, like, I think it's right that we published in 2017. You know, you talk about that in the introduction. Like, maybe 500 years later, this is a good point to kind of assess how restless should we be. Like, where is the church still in need of reform? So, Sam, I don't know how far you've got into the Pietist Option um, at this point. But, I mean, at least as someone who had heard initial versions of it, who Mm -hmm. has heard versions of Pietism through me and others, like, how is Pietism picking up on the Reformation or extending it or transforming it? Like, what what would a Pietist Reformation look like in the 21st century? I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. I mean, I, I'm somebody who does not come from a pietist tradition, but whose life has been deeply impacted by it over the last 15 to 20 years. Um, and I think 
I mean, it's simple, but I guess Pietism lends towards that a little bit too. Like, like it's it. What always strikes me about Pietism is the sort of notion of it's rooted in the Reformation, but it's rooted in appropriately the heart of the Reformation, and um, and that that it it goes back to some sort of simple touchstones to say like, how do we know this is. Um, how do we know this is real Christianity? How do we know this is real religion? And it's not um, tied to doctrines as deeply as it's tied to experience. Um, and it's rooted in Scripture as a guide to experience, a guide to living, rather than, um, or maybe less than it's a guide to uh, doctrinal minutiae, things like that. So um, that's always been the, the draw to me. And, and what's, what's interesting is that that, I think, has the possibility to um, counteract some of this that some of the things that we're talking about right because like how do you get um, how do you get religion back into the public sphere in a way that's healthy right right and it's and and it's about I mean I, I think the beginning of it is it's about talking about religious experience mm -hmm. your religious experience my religious experience everyone's really like that becomes a way for it to get out of because it still is individual mm -hmm. but it's about but i mean spainer i mean if you if you think if you ask spainer you know like what should a sermon look like, like if you're talking about how god's working in your life like that's a pretty good start and like and that's a way to take something that's private and make it public is to do that so so i think that's a way to counteract some of these things uh, potentially, I think it also then shifts the emphasis on religion to motivation for like service. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, what does it look like then to bring religion into the public? I mean, it's Christians following their calling and serving right. others, right? Like that's what it's going to look like. Well, I will say, even in the church I grew up in, the, the version of Catholicism that I grew up in ten years post Vatican II, like I didn't have the language of Pietism. It turns out I grew up in a kind of Pietistic to certain degrees. Yeah. Um, understanding of Christianity to the point where doctrine really was far less emphasized um, and service um, questions of justice, questions of how you live your life, who you're going to be were far more central. And, and that couldn't be a, that's a product of lots of things in my upbringing. Um, but that's what the church taught me. You know, the, the Catholic church taught me for the first 18 years of my life. Well, and to tie some elements of the season together, I, I think pietism kind of recovers by way of Luther experiential Christianities of the Middle Ages, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's often been remarked there are connections between pietism and monasticism, or at least between pietism and things like the Brethren of the Common Life, like mm -hmm. lay versions of, you know, a kind of committed community. Um, um, but also with mysticism, right? I mean, any, any kind of Christianity that suggests that this is fundamentally about the relationship between God and in, in the individual and then the individual and others in the community. Mm -hmm. And then maybe we get too hung up on thinking how to describe that relationship or ordering that relationship. And at least as Ruri puts it, like he makes Luther sound like a pietist. He says Luther doesn't care about those theological minutiae. Luther is someone who is desperately in love with God and can't believe that God loves him back and spends his life agonizing over what that can be. And, and it leads him to grace mm -hmm. then. You know, and I think that I think that my favorite portraits of Luther are done in that direction. Yeah. You know, like even the, for all its faults, the 2003 Luther film, right? Like, like yeah. that, that, that the Joseph Fiennes version of Luther is, is a Luther who's 
it's really about how do we bring the heart back to religion and i mean like yeah i mean it's he's he feels like a revivalist yeah so know? that i mean that's where actually our book starts like is how do we define pietism we'd say it's about certain instincts and the very first instinct we say is we know god less through propositions than prepositions you know we use ideas to describe God, but what actually matters is that we are with God. We have life in Christ. We are under the Lordship of Christ. We are working towards the kingdom of God. I mean, like, or, I mean, we're, we're here in Advent. Like, I mean, I feel like Christmas is the most prepositionally, I mean, it's Emmanuel season, mm-hmm. right? It's God with us. That's incarnation. That's what we celebrate. Like, and, um, so I don't know. Like, I mean, it, I, I don't want to claim that the pietism is about to launch some new reformation. Like, mostly what strikes me is, like, this is going to take a while to work out. Like, if we're, let's just say we're right about, like, the need for some kind of renewal and, like, the steps we suggest are right. They're all very, I think, mundane kinds of things that are done individually in small groups. They're not going to be recognized. They don't fit into a quick fix, instant gratification kind of society. This is not a mass movement. And, yeah, I do think, like... It is addressing the kind of, you know, uh, itch that we have for reform and that we constantly feel. Maybe it's sort of reached a pitch where this book comes at the right moment. So that, that that's my hope, at least. And that's one of the reasons I was so eager to kind of explore the Reformation again, having written that book and uh, and being prompted by this anniversary. If only there was some way we could get our hands on that book. Where can you find this? Uh, you, you guys know where to look. Uh, so uh, thanks for joining us for our survey of the legacies of the Reformation and, and for the entire third season, whether you listen to one episode or seven. We appreciate you being part of this. If you like what you heard, you can read more in this book, The Pietist Option. It is available from Amazon. Other major retailers, Sam, we just found out the audiobook is available from uh, Amazon, ChristianAudio.com. So I I know you would like that. that. I am totally getting that. It's done by, I looked up the narrator. I'd never heard. He's a professional voice actor. Like, he's done, like, everything from, like, John Piper and R.C. Sproul books to, like, old versions of... Oh, I think he had like Thomas Akempis. I'm so before. excited for like oh, honestly, yeah. I'm. He's thrilled. got this wonderful like baritone mellifluous. Yes. Like the sample is a chapter market wrote, so I was less interested. Self centered. <laughs> um, but I did get a download code, so I'm excited to listen to it. Nice. My next drive to Iowa. Anyway, you can also read from me at thepietistschoolman.com and every Tuesday at the Anxious Bench. The Pietist Schoolman podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. This episode was produced and engineered by Sam Mulberry. I'm Chris Garrett. Thanks for listening, and may you have a profound Advent and a joyous Christmas. Mm-hmm.